Well, I hope you've been blessed today. I'm glad you came, and may the Lord bless you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. What are we getting ourselves into today? I will ask you up front, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we started this passage last week. David uh, somehow got the first half of the chapter, and I got the second half of the chapter. And so I would ask you, if you are visiting, or perhaps this is the first time you've heard this passage of Scripture, uh, please don't throw any stones just this yet. Uh, please don't storm off in, in great offense. Uh, let us go through it, because I'm hoping, like a good Roald Dahl story, there should be an interesting twist in the tale when we get to the end. Uh, to be honest with you, I did very seriously consider beginning this morning's sermon with a sexist joke. And I kind of felt that that would be a good start because whoever laughed at the sexist joke, I would be able to say, okay, this sermon's for you. Uh, the rest of you can go home. You seem to be okay. But then I realized I don't need any jokes when it comes to this matter because history is pretty laughable itself. If you will allow me to read a few things. In 1910, Walter Gallican wrote an interesting little book. The book's title was Modern Woman and How to Tame Her. In it, he said, a modern woman who is of the contentious type is often amenable to love and reason if she will only listen quietly, a process that is painful for her. You may firmly, rationally, and kindly convince her that she is not always in the right. He goes on to say a number of things and then concludes, a woman who will not listen to such a manifesto must be dismissed from your life. Just a few years later, uh, Bernard McFadden wrote a guidebook called Womanhood and Marriage, and he put the responsibility on women to let their future husbands know if they wish to retain the rights of their own body a shockingly new concept for the era, because he said it has so long for time been accepted that the husband's right over the wife's body was inherent. It is advisable for any young woman who takes the other point of view to make her attitude thoroughly understood by her future husband before she definitely takes upon herself the obligations of the marriage state. Sadly, history hasn't only been quite laughable on this matter. History and even the church has been guilty of some shocking statements and shocking positions when it comes to the topic of women. Tertullian, the father of Latin Christianity in around 160 to 220 AD, speaking to women, said, you are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that tree. You are the first forsaker of the divine law. You are the one who persuaded him whom the devil was not brave enough to approach. To which I would say, Tertullian, why don't you tell us how you really feel? Oregon, a few years later, and around AD 258, said, For it is improper for a woman to speak in an assembly 
No matter what she says, even if she says admirable things or even saintly things, that is of little consequence since they come from the mouth of a woman. And you've all heard me quote Martin Luther many a time. Martin Luther, the reformer in around uh, 15, 17 and onwards, said, men have broad and large chests and narrow hips and more understanding than women who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips. To the end, they should remain at home, sit still, keep house and bear and bring up children. Now, I'm going to stop there because I could probably spend all day reading things like this, terrible quotes regarding women. Isn't it any wonder that there are so many women, even today, who, who find no place for themselves within the Christian community, within the body of believers, and within the church? To be fair, however, there were positive comments and co positive views even in those early days. One of the church fathers, Jerome, in around A.D. 350 to 420, uh, he was criticized for dedicating one of his books to women. And so in response, he said, these people do not know that while Barak trembled, Deborah saved Israel, that Esther delivered from supreme peril the children of God. Is it not to woman that our Lord appeared after his resurrection? Yes, and the men could then blush for not having sought what the woman had found. You know, when you first heard that passage being read, perhaps last week or maybe this week, you may have had a couple of questions come to mind. If it makes you feel better, the young girl that read for us this morning uh, was asked by Lisa, and when she read it, she got back to Lisa and said, are you sure I'm supposed to be reading this passage? Uh, and so you're, you're in good company. But, but I wonder what sort of questions it might come to your mind to say, Brian, how could you preach that? How could you read that? Uh, or, or why would you say that? Why would you read those historic quotes? Maybe you're sitting a little more introspectively and kind of going, well, I wonder what that means. What does the Bible say? Well, what does the rest of the Bible say about this? Perhaps you might say, well, what does Jesus say about this? What's his answer? Maybe you're here this morning going, Brian, I don't understand how this could be relevant to me. I've come in this week hoping to encounter the Lord. I've come in, you don't know what I'm carrying with me in the experiences, the struggles, the trials I'm going through, and I'm hoping to hear from God. I'm hoping to encounter, to receive a touch from the Holy Spirit, and instead I hear some misogynistic statement subjugating woman. I don't need this. Of course, I have questions for you. When we read a topic or a passage like this and speak into this topic, what do you know about this passage? What have you historically been taught? What presuppositions do you bring with you? What is your view of Scripture? What is your view of the God whom Scripture introduces us to and who Scripture reveals? Now, I might not be able to answer all of those questions this morning. I am, however, going to attempt to. So let me start by making a few positional statements, and then we'll go into that passage of Scripture and try and get an understanding of what the Apostle Paul could possibly 
have been saying to that congregation, and how is that then relevant for you and for me today as we live our lives? The first statement I want to make is regarding Scripture. You know, we've just read from 1 Timothy chapter 2. In a few chapters later, in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is my belief that all of Scripture is relevant and useful. All of Scripture is able to teach us and direct us even in our lives today. While we might engage with it and and realize that it was written thousands of years ago, it is not irrelevant. It is still able to teach me. It is still able to correct me. It is still able to direct me as I live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as long as I approach it humbly with an understanding of taking it for what it is, the very Word of God, I am assured I know that it will speak and it will lead me and direct me. It is also my belief, along with the pastoral team here at White Rock Baptist Church, that we would be doing you a great disservice if we did not occasionally go through the whole council of Scripture verse by verse in a systematic way as we preach through books of the Bible. Let me tell you, it's a whole lot easier picking and choosing kind of handy and nice topics that appeal to us. But when we come through scriptures, we believe we should because all scripture is God-breathed. We know that, well, sometimes that's going to give us a challenging passage. And we cannot avoid it. We cannot escape it. We must deal with it. We must engage with it. And this is why we're handling the scripture this morning. As I quote that verse from 2 Timothy, I must emphasize the word all. All scripture is useful. All scripture is God-breathed. This leads me to do two things. On the one side, I don't elevate one verse above the rest of scripture, trying to build a doctrine out of that one verse. In fact, to do that would be a little bit like strolling off into a forest, heavy laden with trees, um, And coming up to a magnificent tree, great big one with huge branches, and taking one branch, chopping off one branch, heading back to where I'm building my house, and then attempting to build a house with that one branch. You and I both know that house will be woefully inadequate and complete. It is the same with Scripture. We cannot take one verse and try and build a house from it. And the second thing I do do with Scripture is I allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. That is to say that when I come across a difficult passage like I have this morning, or a challenging verse, I hold it up in light of the passage and the chapter and the book it's in. But not only there, I hold it up in light of what does the rest of Scripture say? What might I find about it as I read from other parts of the Bible? In today's topic, we will see the rest of Scripture does speak to it. And equally important, Jesus models for us. Now, from a a high-level view, some of you know what we're talking about in terms of this verse. We're dealing with the broader topic of women in ministry. More specifically, women in positions of leadership in the Christian community. This is a topic that comes up from time to time. Our church is certainly not immune to the conversation 
And so White Rock Baptist Church actually has a position. I'm pretty sure it's already quite obvious uh, if you're visiting with us in terms of where we land in church uh, woman in ministry within the church. We went through a season in our own history where we wrestled with this, and this conversation was had. Uh, We went through scriptures, numerous scriptures, digging deep into what they say and what they mean, and ultimately the church took a vote in terms of women in ministry at White Rock Baptist Church. And this church voted overwhelmingly in support and favor that women have a right and women have a role within ministry, within the life of White Rock Baptist Church. We currently have Jennifer serving as associate pastor. Before her, we had Faye Puttacombe also as an associate pastor. We have Lisa Strew as our children's pastor. We understand and we see that God calls and God equips both men and women for ministry. We exist within a broader connection of churches, a broader community of Baptist churches known as the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada. And while the CBWC recognizes the rights of each individual congregation to choose for itself what it will do, it has repeatedly affirmed at assembly the stance that women are equally able as men to be called and equipped. And women, or sorry, let me rephrase that, churches are free to bring forward women for the ordination process. And there will not be, there will be no bias against them simply because they are women. The CBWC is largely egalitarian. Uh, Even though the simple label egalitarian and its opposite label complementarian is far too reductionist to fully cover all of the nuanced variations of what those mean. Now, I've got to stop there. Quick hands up. Anybody kind of saying to themselves, what did he just say? Egalitarian, complementarian, what do those mean? I have no idea. You've just lost me. You may as well be speaking Latin. Let me try and overly simplify by defining in two sentences without doing full justice, but at least giving a bit of direction. Egalitarians on one side of this debate believe that men and women, while created differently with inherent differences, are equally able to serve and lead alongside each other. A woman can be gifted and called by God to serve in any role that a man could be. On the other side of the debate are the complementarians. Complementarians believe that men and women are created differently and complement each other by completing the differences in each other to create a unified whole. Now, of course, some of you are going, but that's what I believe. Funnily enough, most egalitarians believe that as well. And they get quite upset that complementarians have taken the label because we understand the truth that we are created differently and together we complement one another. Unfortunately, for the complementarians, they go so far as to say that in those differences, women are not called to serve in leadership positions over men. And they will use a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2 as well as a few others to maintain that. So how did we land there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's get back into our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. 
Now, I'm grateful for authors like N.T. Wright and Gilbert Belazikian and a number of others who have spent far more years uh, trying to come to grips with what Paul is saying or could have been saying. Scholars with minds far greater than mine who've wrestled with the Greek and wrestled with the translation to come to an understanding. There's a lot in this little passage this morning. Paul makes comments about makeup, about clothing, about childbirth, about jewelry, and all sorts of other things. But I want to focus firstly on verses 11 and 12, and then maybe the rest will make sense around that. Verse 11 and 12, Paul says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, Is this an accurate English translation of the original Greek of the text? I don't think so. And I'm not the only person who doesn't think so. You see, the Greek word that Paul uses for authority in this passage is the word authential. Now, you may hear a similarity on authential to our word authority, but that's where it ends. You see, this is the only time in all of Paul's writings where he uses this particular Greek word that we have now translated as authority. In his other instances of using the word authority and speaking about authority, he uses a different word. So if it's the only time and it is a different word, surely immediately there we should be challenged to say, can it convey the same meaning as the other ones? Surely there's a difference here. Surely there is something else afoot. Now, of course, I'm not trying to sound all smart and learned by quoting a bunch of Greek, knowing that most of you don't know the Greek. If it makes you feel better, I don't really know the Greek myself. I just know how to read it, uh, and that's about it. I have to go to other smart men who've studied this stuff and, and kind of read from there. I'm not trying to do that. But what I am trying to do is remind ourselves that we have to stretch ourselves when we come to Scripture. And even when we read it, and yes, there are times it makes plain sense, even there we should be forced to say, what is the rest of Scripture saying in relation to this? What does it mean? You see, more and more biblical scholars are beginning to agree that the English that we've translated in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12, does not accurately reflect the Greek And it is potentially misleading and needs to be wrestled with. And I want to challenge you and say, these aren't liberal scholars who don't hold a high view of Scripture. These are men and women who hold to a a view of Scripture that says all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is useful and beneficial and necessary to guide us and direct us. And even as they say that, this is why they are compelled to wrestle with the language and wrestle with even the Greek Based on a few historical writings, and there are very few with this original Greek word used. Based on that, the interpretation of that Greek word might better be interpreted as the abuse of authority or the misuse of authority. So it's not inconceivable that Paul is saying women should not misuse or abuse authority when they find themselves in that position. Now, that leads to the question, well, why would Paul say this? Well, that's not really answered for us directly in the text. That's answered for the context or by the context around which Timothy finds himself. 
You see, when we investigate the history where Timothy and this young church find themselves in a little city called Ephesus, we discover something interesting about Ephesus. Ephesus housed one of the largest temples of its day, a famous shrine dedicated to the god Artemis. Now, we might miss something when we hear the word Artemis. The Romans had a different word. For them, Artemis was Diana. It was a female deity. And do you know what one of the requirements was to be a priest in the temple of Diana? It was to be a woman. And so within this place, there were priests who were women who ruled the show. And if I may say this in tongue-in-cheek, kept the men in check. So those who might believe feminism is a recent development, I think you will find fragments of it all through history. As women were not only fighting for their own rights, but trying to go beyond God's created order and beyond position and status by not being happy to be equal, but to be above. And it seems only natural that Paul would caution within this context to this little church to say, Timothy, don't let the woman abuse authority because of what they see in a temple just down the street. Don't let women usurp that and now try and enforce their statements and their view. And so, in the preceding verse, where Paul says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, often it's interpreted in light of verse 11, but is that really a good way to answer that verse? You see, the verse before that particular one uh, speak of women not adorning themselves with jewelry, with makeup, but rather to adorn themselves with good works. Again, there's a context here. For us, there would seem nothing out of the ordinary for a lady to come into church wearing makeup, wearing fine clothing, wearing gold jewelry or pearls. But you see, in this context and in this day, if a woman let down her hair, so to speak, and adorned herself with makeup and with jewelry, well, she was advertising something. And she was advertising that there were certain services she was prepared to give in exchange for money. If you need me to draw you a picture or explain that a little bit more, come and chat to me afterwards. And so Paul is saying, as you discover freedom in Christ, as you discover the gospel, as you discover life eternal, the good news, don't now use your freedom as an excuse to just throw off everything you know and throw off restraint. Because if you do that, Others in your city are going to walk in and be confused because they're going to go, well, why are there prostitutes in this community? This is no different to any of the other temples around us. And so Paul says, ladies, don't use that freedom in Christ to throw off, but rather remain humble and do good works. Be adorned with good works of serving Jesus Christ. And let glory go back to God. As an aside, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of read a passage like this and go, well, what does that mean for us today? Uh, you know, should Brian be telling everybody not to wear makeup? Uh, well, at least the ladies not to wear makeup. Uh, where do we draw the line? I mean, should men be moisturizing? Uh, you know, how should we cut our hair? Uh, why stop there? What about the clothing we wear? 
And we have all these little sideline debates and these little distractions. I don't for a moment believe that Paul would come to us today and say, stop doing what you're doing. What I do think Paul would say is whatever you do, even the makeup you put on, the clothing you wear, the jewelry you might have, whatever you do, what are your motives behind that? Are your motives that God would be glorified? Are the motives in your heart that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be presented and proclaimed? Or is it all about you? And I think Paul would speak to that. But let's come back to a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. You see, surely, surely it is more likely that Paul is speaking about the Scriptures now, you kind of might ask why I would say that, but when Paul says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, I think what Paul is saying is that a woman is free to learn, a woman is free to study the scriptures, a woman is free to know what God is saying, and she should learn in submission to those scriptures and in submission to God. Now, of course, some might go, a woman studying? Brian, have you lost your mind? What heresy and fanatical new thought is this you're suggesting? Or that Paul might be suggesting? Why don't we go back and look at what Jesus' view on this matter was? Surely he had something to say or an example for us. Many of you know the story of Mary and Martha only too well in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 41. Just a short little story. If you don't know it, Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, and he's there. He's busy teaching his disciples, uh, and while he's teaching his disciples, Martha is busy in the background. She's getting everything ready because that's a woman's place. It's in the kitchen. We all know. Well, let me rephrase that. They all knew that. And so Martha is in the kitchen. She's getting everything ready. She's serving. She's working hard, preparing, while Jesus is teaching his disciples. The problem is Martha's lazy sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening in. And so eventually, in exasperation, Martha comes out and she exclaims not to Mary, but to Jesus. And she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, that's a fair enough comment, given the age they lived in. But here's the thing. You see, when you and I read that story... We're so used to hearing sermons around busyness and rather spending time listening to Jesus. And and that is superficially true. But there's a much deeper truth to this passage. First century readers would have been shocked at the choice of words that Luke has used. You see, Luke deliberately says Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Paul illustrates in Acts 22 and verse 3 in the King James Version puts it beautifully because the King James Version talks about Paul sitting at the feet at Gamaliel's or sitting at Gamaliel's feet and learning. You see, when a teacher, when a rabbi, when someone in this position was teaching, if you were sitting at their feet, it meant you were a student of theirs, but not purely a student in order to learn. You were learning because one day you hoped to go and teach what you had learned. And so here is a woman sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning 
A number of scholars have attempted to point out that Martha knows that Mary shouldn't be there. She's a woman in the space where all the men are. The women are supposed to be on the outside and behind. And so when Martha addresses Jesus, really what she's saying is, Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, you've maybe been swept up and busy teaching everyone, and it's really good stuff, by the way, but I don't know if you've noticed my sister's at your feet. She shouldn't be there. And rather than going, oh, you're right, Mary, out of here. Jesus goes, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things. Mary has chosen the right thing. Mary is at the place she belongs, sitting at my feet. A woman sitting at Jesus' feet, sitting, learning in order to go and teach. What sort of rabbi is this man that he would willingly teach a woman? Doesn't he know the cultural norms and customs of the day? And Jesus says, I do know, and I know exactly what I'm doing. So if we read this whole passage, how might we better interpret it? What might be a a more relevant and more applicable, or sorry, truer to the original text way of translating it? Rather than try and paraphrase the gospel according to Brian, I'm going to read N.T. Wright's paraphrase of it. N.T. Wright says, this might be a better way of interpreting or translating this passage of Scripture. Sorry. He goes on to say in verse 8, So this is what I want. The men should pray in every place, lifting up holy hands with no anger or disputing. In the same way, the women too should clothe themselves in an appropriate manner, modestly and sensibly. They should not go in for elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Instead, as is appropriate for women who profess to be godly, they should adorn themselves with good works. They must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them. They should be left undisturbed. Adam was created first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into trespass. She will, however, be kept safe through the process of childbirth if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with prudence. Now, I know that still creates questions for some of us, maybe even some offense for some of us. I haven't even touched on the topic of childbirth this morning, and our time is running away, and I know if I try, I'm simply going to offend But let me say it like this. I don't believe Paul saw childbirth as a punishment. Yes, childbirth is difficult. It's painful. It's dangerous. It's often the most testing moment in a woman's life. I know this to be true because I was present for two births. And I think I speak on behalf of all men who've been in the maternity ward at any stage of their life. Thank you, ladies, for taking one for the team. Because I don't know a man alive who would dare go through that process. Childbirth is hard work. But it's not a curse to be taken as a sign of God's displeasure. It's part of God's plan. And for some reason known only to God in the carrying out of this plan, he has chosen to use woman in this this incredible, integral way. Part of this process of bringing forth life. 
I asked one of the questions you may have is, well, what does this mean? How do we live? Let me close off with this. In just a few words, these verses exist in a broader chapter, which exists in a letter, which exists in a collection of letters given to us that we know as the Bible. So ladies, let me begin by addressing you. And, and if I may, apologizing to you for the times when I and men like me have seen or stated that woman might be inferior to men, or that woman might not be able to serve God in the same way that men are. As I engage fully with Scripture, I see that Jesus calls and equips both men and women in all manner of service in his church to serve the world. I apologize for times when you've been hurt by men who have rather clung to positional power instead of truly seeking to find the direction of Scripture and of our Lord on this matter. As I listen to certain Christians, my heart breaks that women are still subjected to a notion that they are the weaker sex and therefore must remain submissive and below. Just this past week while I was browsing Facebook, I saw a comment from a friend of mine that related to a a well-known pastor in church that have gone through a transition and there have been a few challenges and a female minister has taken over and somebody made a comment that, well, it's evident that Satan has infiltrated this church because they've put a woman in power. This is just this week. And it blows my mind, it boggles my mind that people will still hold to this position. Men, I want to challenge you We know that men and women are different. We are not better. We are not stronger. We are created uniquely in the sovereign will of an omnipotent and all-knowing God for his glory and for his purpose. Let me say to you, woman, you are woman. I've got an exclamation mark in my notes here. You are woman. You are created uniquely and wonderfully by an eternal, omnipotent, sovereign God who does not make mistakes. You are created uniquely along with the uniqueness of men to serve God and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world in desperate need of the good news of Christ. And as you and as we and as together we do battle against those who would make the mistake of on one hand suggesting that women are inferior or on the other hand that womanhood should be cast aside as a hindrance to humanity, we do battle together alongside one another created in the image of God. At the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 3, Paul says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The goal of this community of Christ followers is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to do so using men and women, young and old, the entire community equipped and enabled and called by God to go and proclaim that good news. That God the Savior wants no one to perish and wants all 
to find Jesus Christ and to find life evermore. Let's pray together. Our Lord, as we come in to passages like this, I'm reminded, Jesus, of you speaking to the disciples, saying that you had to go in order that the Holy Spirit would come because the Holy Spirit would lead us into truth and would remind us of what you've said in your word. And so, God, as we wrestle, as we grapple, with passages like this one. Let us not simply take them at surface value and then use them as an excuse to subjugate or to enforce or to belittle. But rather, when we are challenged, oh Holy Spirit, help us to wrestle humbly before you. And then as we come to you humbly and approach Scripture humbly, Would you lead us into truth and lead us to what you are saying so that when we read it, we might find what it means for us. I thank you, Father, that this church has a history of women and men who have been called and gifted by you to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that we live in a world where particularly this topic flows over into the topic of, and conversation of gender and sexuality and all of those things that we haven't even touched this morning. Oh God, in the midst of all of this, let us understand your divine will and your divine instruction. Remind us that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, directing us in the way of righteousness so that we would be equipped to serve you and to proclaim to the ends of the earth. We ask this in that incredible matchless name of Jesus Christ. And as your bride, one body, united together in Christ, we pray and say, Amen.